everyone. The verdict is in. And today I have the honor of featuring one of my new partners at our very special law firm. And again, if you haven't heard about our firm, I'm one of the top trial lawyers, considered widely as one of the top trial lawyers for complex litigations around the United States. We have clients all over the world. We have offices in LA and New York. We do litigation. We handle appeals and arbitrations in every single state in the country with a circuit of local counsel we're close with. We'll be opening new offices in Delaware and Charleston and possibly Nashville next year. We all left big firms and lowered our rates in half. We don't allow any of our lawyers to be bonused for billable hours. We find that to be a very counterproductive system, but instead only if they add value to the client that we're representing in that case. And that is through a discourse with the client. We are very diverse. We don't allow anyone in the firm who would support even tacitly sexism, ageism, any type of racist tendencies. We're very diverse. We speak a lot of languages. We're tolerant of each other. We form an amazing team. You should really think about hiring us. Tim is one of the superstars in our law firm and a recently elevated partner. Tim, welcome aboard. Hi, Jerry. Thanks for having me. Tim is a Harvard Law graduate. Graduated in 2013. He has been a litigator his entire career. He has extensive experience in copyright and business disputes. He began his career doing international copyright disputes and copyright terminations. Now he litigates all sorts of complex cases, which also can involve international clients. We're going to talk about a few things with Tim and have a very productive session. As you know, we're having major guests who have agents on this podcast. I thank everyone for supporting us and listening so often. Tim, let's first talk about some of the things that you do and that our firm does to be super efficient in handling a matter. Well, I think the first thing to do is to identify goals and then essentially set a plan working backwards from where we want to be in terms of representation. So the way to maximize efficiency, I find, is to know where we're headed and then essentially make sure that everything we're doing is oriented towards getting there. And that way we can be very effective. We cut out all the fat, we're just directly staying on track, and only things that move us forward are going to be something that we spend time on. And Tim, you speak another language, don't you? Yep. I speak French fluently. I'm also able to get by in Spanish as well as learning a couple of languages here and there, such as Irish and German. So Tim is representative of many lawyers at our firm. We speak many different languages. In fact, at last count, we speak over 22 different languages. Now, Tim, we deal with a lot of international clients, clients from other countries. And when you are based in the United States, dealing with a client in Poland or in Singapore or China or Spain, or Brazil, or Suriname, or Chile. I could just keep clicking off the countries that we've worked with people in. What are some of the things that you feel are a challenge, and how do we efficiently handle those matters? Well, I think the biggest challenge is to work with people who might not be used to the American system, and therefore it is incumbent upon us to communicate with them what they can expect in an American court setting or an arbitration setting, which is pretty common with international business. So along those lines, like I said before, I think it kind of connects back to 
the overall way to be efficient is to set expectations and set an understanding of what goals are early, but to be more proactive in this process early on to make sure that if it's a client from another country, they understand exactly what their expectations should be in terms of the process, how long it should take, and what kind of rights they have along the way. That's a very good point. There are different court systems in different countries. And I know that, at least in my experience, foreign clients have a very hard time understanding why trials get continued. I had one case where the judge just didn't want to try the case. He continued it for various reasons over and over again. And for them, especially if they're from the Asian culture, where the matters and the hearings are scheduled and usually take place on time, the idea that there's these long six-month continuances frustrate the living daylights out of them. Have you had that experience? Yeah, I've definitely had that experience before, where uh, there's a lot of questions about why it's taking so long and things along those lines. But the double-edged sword of living in a culture or a country that has a lot of rights, more so than some countries, is that this means that there's a lot of rights to a defendant. So that will give uh, plaintiffs something to be upset about sometimes, but ultimately what it means is that it essentially gives a toolkit to defendants, and the shoe has been on the other foot many times when I've actually been a defendant's attorney, where because the court system is designed in such a way that it's meant to make sure that things are done properly and to make sure that no one has, for example, property taken away without a full opportunity to be heard and due process, that sometimes things can be pretty slow, at least comparatively, especially if someone comes from a country that doesn't have those kinds of protections. That's right. Now, you have been spending the last several years representing a client from India, which has had many different matters, and you've presided over all of them. The first thing that I observe from my kind of supervising or watching over that is, and I see this in other cases that I've taken in from foreign clients, in foreign countries, usually work is done on a flat fee. And often the client may have only had experience in transactional work. They had a contract or they did a merger or they had a will or they did something. And now they have litigation and maybe even in their country, litigation is done on a flat fee. Very hard to do in this country because our system of justice is more developed and it provides more rights, as you said. And there are more hearings and there are more options and things that can go on that would be difficult to fit into a flat fee. So what you start to hear are complaints about why is this costing so much? And our firm prides itself in our efficiency and we always get our fees awarded when we have a fee request. The courts comment on how reasonable we are, but the Clients in foreign countries don't always see it that way. Tim, talk about that a little bit. Well, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, there's certainly more malleability and twists and turns that can happen in a litigation, certainly in the United States, certainly with arbitrations as well, where there's certainly going to be many steps along the way where the different attorneys on each of their own sides can really generate a lot of unexpected twists and turns that just might not be the kind of thing that you can budget for in advance. And that will come through things like unexpected discovery, or if there's someone who's being particularly intransigent in the discovery process, for example, I mean, that's going to generate a good deal of motion practice that might be completely necessary in many cases. 
especially if there are people that are more upfront or there might be fewer fact questions that come up along the way. Uh, it always depends on not just the client, but the case and what the case is about. And it can really come down to not having perfect information about who we're litigating against. And part of our job is to investigate people. And unfortunately, what that entails is it means right off the bat, it's very clear that we don't have full information. We don't have the perfect way to kind of give a roadmap of every possible scenario because it ultimately comes down to having people that are flexible enough and agile enough and have the mental agility to be able to continue with a case while you do get those bumps in the road. Yes. And, you know, I had a client from Suriname. I love him to death, but everything he wanted done, how much is that going to cost for this part of the proceeding? And a number would come out where he wanted you to figure it out on the spot before you knew whether your opposing counsel was going to be ultra aggressive and file a bunch of motions or force you to compel arbitration as opposed to willingly go into arbitration, all these variables. And you would give him an estimate and then that's it. Since you a check for that amount thinks that, you know, he's paid for the whole proceeding. And now, you know, you can't get angry at them for this, but there's this huge educational process about how clients in this country generally bill hourly. And they can give you estimates, but it's not a guarantee because there are so many different vehicles that one side or the other can use to drive up or drive down the costs. Would you agree, and maybe you can talk about, the patients we show with our foreign clients, or you in particular show, because of the fact that they're having a hard time understanding the system. Right. And I completely agree. And I definitely have had experiences where we just have to really make it clear about how the process works. And it can be frustrating for clients, very understandably. And, you know, I certainly understand why when you're the CEO of a company, for example, where you have to talk about quarterly costs and expectations and, of course, want to evaluate the case for your shareholders or whoever else you might be talking to if you're the CEO, that it's really important to be upfront about this. And I mean, we certainly do the best that we can under the circumstances to give them all the information that they need for any sort of valuation that they're doing. But at the same time, we can certainly run into situations where there's just a lot of muck being thrown around by the other side. And from our end, if we need to streamline, we streamline. If it does call for muck, potentially, you know, we're always willing to get dirty with them as well. But it's one of those things where it's a two-person game. It's not the same kind of thing as going into the mechanic and asking to get your car repaired. It would be if anyone went to a mechanic where, you know, there was a gremlin in the car that was constantly fighting the mechanics, potentially. But in our case, you know, we're fighting against other people. And that's just the name of the game. Now, our clients live in different time zones, and sometimes they're six hours, three hours, nine hours ahead or behind, but usually ahead. And as it is, we have an office in LA and New York, and that gives us the opportunity to work within two time zones, and we have to learn how to do that because you'll have lawyers wanting to leave their office at five or six who have to go home, and our firm, you can go home and work and get behind a computer there. And work later because the California lawyers are doing a filing that's going to go until midnight, which might actually be three o'clock your time. The reverse is true where the New York lawyers may have something where they have to wake up the California lawyers three hours early. And all of a sudden, somebody's being woken up at five o'clock to deal with an emergency in a New York proceeding. 
but it gets even more exaggerated when you go over into Europe or into Asia, or sometimes you know, it gets screwy, depending on which office we're talking about, if we're down in South America. And those time differences mean that you have to take phone calls at very odd hours. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly it's just part of the job as far as I see it. I'm always available to my clients, and if that means I have to take a call at midnight, then I'm always around. That's just part of the gig, really. But, I mean, it's also something that we have to communicate to the other side. It's not just something that we have to deal with on our own. It's one of those things where the other side might be impatient for certain things. It's come up many times, let's say, in arbitration, where the other side has been causing numerous delays or just been kind of a pain about what we want. And then suddenly they want something. And of course, from their perspective, it's the end of the world. They don't get an answer immediately. So then it's important to communicate to them that, look, as an attorney, there's some decisions that I have to give to the client, or at least I have to run by the client before we can really discuss. And it's a situation where they need to understand that if I need to talk to the client and the client's normally busy to begin with. So Theoretically, they should give me a couple days anyway. But on top of that, they need to understand that I need to be able to set in a realistic time for my client. If they want an answer in the next 20 minutes, it's not going to happen because it's 3 o'clock in the morning where my client is. My client's dead asleep. So it's also about making clear to the other side how unfair it is, not just the other side sometimes, but also the arbitrator or whoever the one who's actually adjudicating is, how unfair it is in certain circumstances to ask for a quick turnaround if the client can't even realistically be reached. So it's one of those things that has to be kept in mind, not just for our own purposes, but also for the overall the case and making sure that things don't get out of control. Well, for example, when we have clients in foreign countries, when we're working out a briefing schedule, we have to make it longer because not only do you have to get the brief in its draft form or its proposed final form to your client, but you may need to get it translated so that they can read it. Now, fortunately, many people can read and write and speak English, but not always. And clients, especially in China and in other parts of the world, will want documents translated before they approve them. Now, that is a long process, even if you have a translator who will work very quickly, and you get into these very complicated areas. As a lawyer, you must advise your client fully. So you're going to be talking to somebody who speaks a different language through an interpreter, and those calls go on for five times as long as a regular call because you say something, the interpreter says it, then the client answers, comes back through the interpreter. You're writing notes, but you're checking down all the time to make sure that they understand it. And often they don't because they're embarrassed to say that they don't. And so you have to constantly remind them that it's okay to ask questions and you can't get short or impatient with the process. So there's no part of the American court system, which at times would require very quick turnaround. You can fit that in with a foreign client. You have to tell the other side and tell the court there's a timeline, there's a language barrier, there's et cetera, et cetera. Tim, can you think of examples of that? Yeah, I mean, I actually can think of a pretty good example. It's actually a pretty funny anecdote right off the top of my head where um, we, this is actually a circumstance where we couldn't get a translator quickly enough, but we were able to overcome that regardless because we were in the middle of an arbitration. It was the arbitration hearing itself. It lasted about four or five days. 
And during the course of that arbitration, one of our arguments was that there was a sort of bait and switch that occurred where the company that our guys were suing basically said that they were going to have certain people of a certain level of quality and talent and experience work on the contract for them. And over the course of the arbitration, we basically posited that they were sending their best guys onto other matters for bigger clients, and then they were treating our guys like an afterthought. And they were vociferous that that was not what they were doing, and they provided timesheets for various employees of theirs that they said were working exclusively on our clients' stuff. So without being able to get a translator quickly enough, because this was basically, I got it that night, and then by the next morning, we needed to analyze that information. I actually looked at the Chinese characters to identify the names of the people that we were interested in, so that I was actually looking at the Chinese characters themselves without really being able to read Chinese, but I could recognize the names and I could see the hours they were working. So I was able to compare and contrast quicker than we were even able to get a translator on it, that I could identify that they were actually not being totally truthful about where the people were working and, in fact, were doing exactly what we were saying they were doing, which was that they had people splitting their time primarily between bigger clients that they claimed wouldn't have been working on our game. So in that circumstance, that was a situation where we were simply more clever and flexible to get around additional time that a translator might take. But in other circumstances, we did have a lot of translation in that case, and it was something that we had to be prepared for. And unfortunately, in this case, they decided to produce documentation so late in the process in an attempt to essentially exonerate themselves that they were representing this as the real proof, additional proof that they didn't have to give us before. But this was the key that was going to show that they were innocent and it backfired completely. They probably figured we couldn't get it translated quickly enough, but it didn't work out that way. Also, we had an actual Chinese speaker in the firm at the time. And she was fully capable of at least giving some basic context to a lot of stuff, even if it wasn't officially translated. So again, this is where having 22 spoken languages really comes in handy, which is that no matter how responsive a translator is, they're always going to be billing their time and doing things in an official capacity. Whereas if you have somebody who's just on hand, you can reach them at different hours potentially, and you can get them right away. And then you can get that immediate context that you might otherwise lose. Yeah, and I should note that our firm is set up to handle foreign clients. Many firms will require that a foreign client set the call during our work hours. Our firm does not. We'll take the call 3 in the morning, 2 in the morning, 6 in the morning, 9 at night, 10 at night, because we want to provide you service. Our rule that we don't charge for travel extends to foreign clients unless they demand that we Um, to see them. If we're coming to pitch them or coming in for arbitration in Hong Kong or something, we don't charge for our airfare or our room board because we want them to focus on the fact that we're just charging for our time. Again, because my lawyers do not get bonus for billable hours, no one's falling asleep on a plane and billing that time through. They don't care about their billable hours. They record them because when they're honestly working, the client honestly gets billed but they are more focused on adding value. Now, foreign laws are also, you have to reach out to foreign counsel to get guidance on foreign laws. 
And that's something we do very well. And Tim, have you found yourself doing that? Yeah, I've worked with four-in-laws before. I mean, in those circumstances, it just comes down to research and potentially having a good local council. But I mean, in other circumstances, I haven't even used a local council. If it's a circumstance where if it's a kind of law that seems to translate well internationally, sometimes you don't really need one. So, for example, I did one case once where there were foreign copyrights that were implicated because there was a it was really necessary to do a kind of valuation and look at what kind of rights the client held in other countries in terms of what kind of copyrights they owned and what their rights to those copyrights were. And essentially, I actually did a massive survey of foreign law to essentially determine the client's full rights and the full valuation of those rights. And my primary focus was actually on Commonwealth countries. I actually remember there was one particularly sticky area of South African law, of all things, and I contacted a very friendly professor of copyright law in South Africa that was very willing to talk to me without any cost or anything. And the reason why I reached out to him is that he won a pretty landmark case. I mean, it might be fair to say that he's sort of the South African nimmer in some ways. So I reached out to him and it was a very good experience. And it's just one of those things where as part of my research, sometimes it's about reading treatises and reading laws and going into a physical library. And I mean, in this particular instance, I actually did a lot of work out of the law library in downtown Los Angeles, which is one of the biggest, if not the biggest, essentially law libraries, public law libraries in the country for foreign law resources. I think one of the few bigger libraries you can find is one that I'm used to working out of back in law school, which is the law school at Harvard Law. But yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where you just have to be flexible. And sometimes if the way you got to find answers is to go to a library or go to a different resource or reach out to somebody back in law school or anything along those lines or reach out to a professor in South Africa, that's just the kind of flexibility that you need to be able to do foreign legal research. Because it's not going to be as simple as plugging into Westlaw and doing an electronic search. A lot of this stuff is just physical copy only. Yes. And in fact, you have to understand different cultures, which are firm because we have so many different cultures and our lawyers are cultured and open and progressive. We understand other countries and their cultures. I had a case where I had a client in Brazil that had kiosks that provided cards that were the equivalent of money. And it was a very big thing at the time. And their partner was in China. And they all of a sudden noticed competing kiosks opening up in all the locations that their kiosks were. And they did a little research and they found out that their Chinese partner was undercutting them and competing with them to basically steal their idea and basically run the show themselves in a competing venture. So when they confronted them, at first, the Chinese lawyers were very polite. They all pretty much speak pretty good English, the lawyers, and they're usually educated here in the United States. And they're very polite. And they told us that those weren't their kiosks. And even if they were, they weren't going to remove them. Now, suing a client in China is almost impossible. You have to go through the Hague Convention, and when you do that, you often get a response that the company doesn't exist, even though it does. So unless you have a partner over in China who can assist you in the litigation, somebody who's there on the ground, you are stuck with the reality that the Chinese do not provide the same 
common courtesy that other countries do who are members of the Hague Convention and who will have rules for serving your judgment in their country, letting you collect on a judgment or allowing you to go take a deposition or start a proceeding. But you should also understand different cultures. What I told them, asked, you know, my clients were collecting the revenue for their venture and had many millions of dollars that were about to be paid over to the Chinese, and they were going to do it. And I said, no, don't. They said, well, we'll be in breach of the agreement. Well, they're in breach of the agreement. So you're going to hold that on the grounds that it's a set-off against your future damages. And I'm not sitting there bringing in a Brazilian law firm. This is street justice, and sometimes you have to think that way. And, of course, the Chinese lawyers that were speaking very polite English were speaking very impolite English. I heard some curse words. And then they called me up and said, you know what? We're taking down our kiosks because, you know what? They wanted the money. So we understand, you know, I have clients that are uh, from Brazil and from Colombia, Chile, different cultures, each of those countries. So we're not the lawyers who think that everybody from South America is the same. They hardly are. In fact, they all have very different roots and genesis and ideas and values. But, you know, it is a little bit more likely that some of the Latino companies and that you find with offices in Miami, and that's why we have so much litigation in Miami, will look at a contract and, you know, I'm negotiating it for them. We're helping them negotiate a contract and they'll say, forget about it. I don't want to read any more terms. And I'll say, why? And they'll say, because the contract's just the beginning of the negotiation. We're not going to follow it. And when we breach it, we'll have another negotiation. That's very foreign from a U.S. point of view, which is the contract is the contract, and that's what's enforceable. But in certain uh, Latino cultures, the contract is just the beginning of the negotiation when somebody decides that they're going to act contrary to the contract. I should tell you that we love our foreign clients and they love us. Usually we can find a lawyer who speaks their language, and if we're doing enough work for them, we'll hire a lawyer who speaks their language. We look up their culture so that we don't do anything that would be rude or insult them. And we work very hard explaining our system of justice to them. And also, we work with lawyers in England. We have many there. In fact, one of our of counsel, Jim Charney, has an office there half the year, so he can always refer us to good solicitors and barristers. I had a movie production client who was in a piece of litigation, and he was very, very frustrated that the matter went from the solicitor to the barrister. And by the way, in the United States, yeah, you can haggle with your lawyer to get a cheaper rate or you can press them. And our rates are low to begin with, but we're pretty reasonable there. But, you know, in England, <laughs> try to do that with a barrister who's very good. They quote you a price and that's it. You want a good barrister? So that was hard for him to accept. And he didn't like the, you know, the British sense of humor didn't play on him. These are things as a lawyer you have to get in between and be a bridge and explain and help. Now, Tim is a superstar, a humble superstar. He works with clients from all over the globe. And if you have a matter and you want to call on him, he speaks perfect French. He's speaking better and better Spanish. He's starting to learn how to read Mandarin. And he's just one of many lawyers in our firm. We have lawyers who speak Croatian and Russian, German and Spanish, and we have Polish and you name it, we have it. But more importantly, we have a love for the other cultures. And please know that we have a summer associate who's considering joining our firm from Harvard. We're working with two Harvard professors on getting the Kansas City Chiefs to change their name. 
We have other lawyers from Harvard at our law firm, but other really good law schools. And these are really amazing people. So I want to cheer Tim Lamoureux and ask you to know that you can call him. He is brilliant. Tim, any final words? Oh, well, first, thank you very much, Jerry. I really appreciate the kind words and having me on the podcast. I really enjoyed it. And I guess I just want to echo that at the end of the day, if anyone from outside the United States or inside the United States needs any kind of legal representation, then I would be more than happy to talk to them. And I think the real trick to having a great representation for a foreign client in particular is to just find somebody who has the traits of a great attorney to begin with, someone who will listen, someone who will be flexible and have an agile mind so that they can find creative solutions because that's important for a client in the United States and it's only amplified if it's a client from outside the United States. That's right. And also very important in our dealing with so many international clients is the fact that we make ourselves available at any time and try to find a lawyer in the firm or hire someone who speaks their language. But most importantly is that we bring our efficiency to them and to anybody else, and we win. And you know what? Anytime we run into a foreign client, they will say, Mr. Fox, I read that you always win. And I say, we do. And that is very important to them. And they're very important to us. Tim, thank you so much for being on this show. Tim is a cat lover. So if you are a lover of cats, you can talk to him about his cat. And remember, you can call any of us. Now you know Tim, so please call him. And have a good holiday. Stay safe. And look for compromises when you disagree with people in every walk of life. Thanks, Tim. Thanks again, Jerry. Happy holidays. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.